0: Part One of A Matter of Importance. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Phil Schinabare, Baton Rouge, Louisiana. This story was first published in Astounding Science Fiction, September 1959. A Matter of Importance by Murray Leinster Part 1 Nobody ever saw the message torp. It wasn't to be expected. It came in on a course that extended backward to somewhere near the rift, where there used to be hucks. And for a very, very long way, it had traveled as only message torps do travel. It hopped half a light-year in overdrive and came back to normality long enough for its photocells to inspect the star-filled universe all about. Then it hopped another light-year, and so on. For a long, long time it traveled in this jerky fashion. Eventually, moving as it did in the straightest of straight lines, its photocells reported that it neared a star which had achieved first magnitude brightness. It paused a little longer than usual while its action circuits shifted. Then it swung to aim for the bright star, which was the Sol-type sun, Varinga. The torp speed sped toward it on a new schedule. Its overdrive hops dropped to light month lengths. Its pauses in normality were longer. They lasted almost the fiftieth of a second. When Varenga had reached a suitable greater brightness in the Message Torp's estimation it paused long enough to blast out its recorded message. It had been designed for this purpose and no other. Its overdrive hops shortened to one light hour of distance covered. Regularly its transmitter flung out a repetition of what it had been sent so far to say. In time it arrived within the limits of the Varenga system its hops diminished to light minutes of distance only it ceased to correct its course it hurtled through the orbits of all the planets uttering silently screamed duplicates of the broadcasts now left behind to arrive later it did not fall into the sun of course the odds were infinitely against such a happening it bounded past the sun shrieking its news and hurtled on out to the illimitable emptiness beyond. It was still squealing when it went out of human knowledge forever. The state of things was routine. Sergeant Madden had the traffic desk that morning. He would reach retirement age in two more years, and it was a nagging reminder that he grew old. He didn't like it. There was another matter. His son Timmy had a girl, and she was on the way to Varenga Four on the Cerberus, and when she arrived Timmy would become a married man. Sergeant Madden contemplated this prospect. By the time his retirement came up, in the ordinary course of events, he could very well be a grandfather. He was unable to imagine it. He rumbled to himself. The Telefax hummed and ejected a sheet of paper on top of other sheets in the desk's in cubicle. Sergeant Madden glanced absently at it. It was an operations report sheet, to be referred to if necessary, but otherwise simply to be filed at the end of the day. A voice crackled overhead. "'Attention, traffic,' said the voice. "'The following report has been received and verified as off-planet. Message follows the voice ceased and was replaced by another which wavered and warbled from the electronic spurts normal to solar system and which made for auroras on planets mayday 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 said the second voice call for help call for help ship cerberus major breakdown overdrive heating procyon 3 for refuge help urgently needed there was a pause mayday 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 call for help sergeant madden's voice went blank timmy's girl was on the cerberus then he growled and rifled swiftly through the operations report sheets that had come in since his tour of duty began he found the one he looked for yes Patrolman Timothy Madden was now in overdrive in squad ship 740, delivering the monthly precinct report to headquarters. He would be back in eight days. Maybe a trifle less, with his girl due to arrive on the Cerberus in nine and him to be married in ten, but Sergeant Madden swore. As a prospective bridegroom, Timmy's place was on this call for help to the Cerberus. But he wasn't available. It was in his line because it was specifically a traffic job. The cops handled traffic naturally as they handled sanitary code enforcement and delinks and mercantile offenses and murderers and swindlers and missing persons. Everything was dumped on the cops. They'd even handle the hucks in time gone by, which in still earlier times would have been called a space war. And put down in all the history books, it was routine for the cops to handle the disabled or partly disabled Cerberus. Sergeant Madden pushed a button marked Traffic Emergency and held it down until it lighted. You got that Cerberus report? he demanded of the air about him. Just, said a voice overhead. What have you got on hand? demanded Sergeant Madden the all deb's here said the voice there's a minor overhaul going on but we can get her going in six hours she's slow but you know her hm yeah said sergeant madden he added vexedly my son timmy's girl is on board the cerberus he'll be wild he wasn't here i'm going to take the ready squad ship and go on out passengers always fret when there's trouble and no cop around Too bad Timmy's off on assignment. Yeah, said the traffic emergency voice. Too bad, but we'll get the Aldeb off in six hours. Sergeant Madden pushed another button. It lighted. Madden, he rumbled. Desk. The Cerberus had a breakdown. She's limping over to Procyron Three for refuge to wait for help. The Aldeb'll do the job on her, but I'm going to ride the squad ship out and make up the report. Who's next on call duty? "'Willis,' said a crisp voice, ship three-nine-zero, he's up for next call. "'Playing squint-eye in the squad room now.' "'Pull him loose,' Sergeant Madden ordered, "'and send somebody to take the desk. "'Tell Willis I'll be on the tarmac in five minutes.' "'Check,' said the crisp voice. Sergeant Madden lifted his thumb. All this was standard operational procedure. A man had the desk, an emergency call came in. That man took it, and somebody else took the desk. Eminently fair. No favoritism. No throwing weight around, no glory-grabbing. Not that there was much glory in being a cop. But as long as a man was a cop he was good. Sergeant Madden reflected with satisfaction that even if he was getting on to retirement age, he was still a cop. He made two more calls. One was to records for the customary full information on the Cerberus and on the Procyron system. The other was to the flat where Timmy lived with him. It was going to be lonely when Timmy got married and had a home of his own. Sergeant Madden dialed for message recording and gruffly left word for Timmy. He, Timmy's father, was going on ahead to make the report on the Cerberus. Timmy wasn't to worry. The ship might be a few days late, but Timmy'd better make the most of them. He'd be married a long time. Sergeant Madden got up, grunting from his chair. Somebody came in to take over the desk. Sergeant Madden nodded and waved his hand. He went out and took the slide stair down to the tarmac where Squad Ship 390 waited in standard police readiness. Patrolman Willis arrived at the stubby little craft seconds after the sergeant. "'Procyron three, said Sergeant Madden, rumbling. "'I figure three days. You told your wife?' "'I called,' said Patrolman Willis resignedly. They climbed into the squad ship. Police ships naturally had their special drive which could lift them off without rocket and gave them plenty of speed, but filled up the hull with so much machinery that it was only practical for such ships.' Commercial craft were satisfied with low-powered drives, which meant that spaceport facilities lifted them to space and pulled them down again. They carried rockets for emergency landing, but the main thing was that they had a profitable payload. Squad ships didn't carry anything but two men and their equipment. Sergeant Madden dogged the door shut. The ship fell up toward the sky— The heavens became that blackness studded with jewels which is space. A great yellow sun flared astern. A half bright, half dark globe lay below the planet Varenga 4, on which the precinct police station for this part of the galaxy had its location. Patrolman Willis, frowning with care, established the squad ship's direction, while Sergeant Madden observed without seeming to do so. Presently, Patrolman Willis pushed a button. The squad ship went into overdrive. It was perfectly commonplace in all its aspects. The galaxy went about its business. Stars shone and planets moved around them, and double stars circled each other like waltzing couples. There were also comets and meteors and calcium clouds and high-energy free nuclei all of which acted as was appropriate for them. On some millions of planets winds blew and various organisms practiced photosynthesis. Waves ran across seas. Clouds formed and poured down rain. On the relatively small number of worlds so far inhabited by humans, people went about their business with no thought for such things or anything not immediately affecting their lives and the cops went about their business. Sergeant Madden dozed most of the first day of overdrive travel. He had nothing urgent to do, as yet. This was only a routine trip. The Cerberus had had a breakdown in her overdrive. Commercial ship's drives being what they were, it meant that on her emergency drive she could only limp along at maybe eight or ten lights, which meant years to port. With neither food nor air for the journey, but it was not even conceivable to rendezvous with a rescue ship in the emptiness between stars, so the Cerberus had sent a message tarp and was crawling to a refuse planet more or less surveyed a hundred years before. there she would land by emergency rockets because her drive couldn't take the strain once aground. The Cerberus would wait for help. There was nothing else to be done. But everything was nicely in hand. The squad ship headed briskly for the planet Procyron III, and Sergeant Madden would take the data for a proper official emergency call traffic report on the incident, and in time the Aldeb would turn up and make emergency repairs and see the Cerberus out to space again and headed for port once more this was absolutely all there was to anticipate traffic handled such events as a matter of course so sergeant madden dozed during most of the first day of overdrive he reflected somnolently when awake that it was fitting for timmy's father to be on the job when timmy's girl was in difficulty since timmy was off somewhere else on the second day he conversed more or less with patrolman willis Willis was a young cop, almost as young as Timmy. He took himself very seriously. When Sergeant Madden reached for the briefing data, he found it disturbed. Willis had read up on the kind of ship the Cerberus was, and on the characteristics of Procyron 3, as recorded a century before. The Cerberus was a semi-freighter, candleless type. Procyron 3 was a water planet with less than ten percent of land which was unfortunate because its average temperature and orbit made it highly suitable for human occupation had the ten percent of solid ground been in one piece it would undoubtedly have been colonized but the ground was an archipelago hmm, said sergeant madden after reading the survey recommends this northern island for emergency landing eh willis nodded Hux used to use it, not the island, uh, the planet." Sergeant Madden yawned. It seemed pathetic to him that young cops like Willis and even Timmy referred so often to Hux. There weren't any any Being a cop meant carrying out purely routine tasks nowadays. They were important tasks, of course. Without the cops there wouldn't be any civilization. But Willis and Timmy didn't think of it that way—not yet. To them being a cop was still a matter of glamour rather than routine. They probably even regretted the absence of Hucks. But when a man reached Sergeant Madden's age, glamour didn't matter. He had to remember that his job was worth doing in itself. "'Yeah,' said Sergeant Madden, "'that was quite a time with those Hucks.' Did you, uh, did you ever see a huck, sir? Asked Willis. Before my time, said Sergeant Madden. But I've talked to men who worked on the case. It did not occur to him that the hucks would hardly have been called a case by anybody but a cop. When human colonies spread through this sector, they encountered an alien civilization. By old-time standards, it was quite a culture. The Hux had a good technology, they had spaceships, and they were just beginning to expand themselves from their own home planet or planets. If they had a few more centuries of development, they might have been a menace to humanity, but the humans got started first. There being no longer any armies or navies when the Hux were discovered, the matter of intelligent nonhumans was a matter for the cops. So the police matter-of-factly tried to incorporate the Huck culture into the human. They explained the rules by which human civilization worked. They painstakingly tried to arrange a sub-precinct station on the largest Huck home planet with Huck cops in charge. They made it clear that they had nothing to do with politics, and were simply concerned with protecting civilized people from those in their midst who didn't want to be civilized. The Hucks wouldn't have it. They bristled proudly. They were defiant. They considered themselves not only as good as humans, the cops didn't care what they thought, but they insisted on acting as if they were better. They reacted, in fact, as humans would have done if just at the beginning of their conquest of the stars they'd run into an expanding, farther advanced race which tried to tell them what they had to do. The Hucks fought. They fought pretty good, said Sergeant Madden, tolerantly. Not killer-fashion, like Dillinks. The force had to give him the choice of joining up or getting out. Took years to get him out. Had to use all the off-duty men from six precincts to handle the last riot. The conflict, he called a riot, would have been termed a space battle by a navy or an army, But the cops operated with a strictly police frame of reference which was the reverse of military. They weren't trying to subjugate the Hucks, but to make them behave. In consequence, their tactics were unfathomable to the Hucks, who thought in military terms. Squadrons of police ships, which would have seemed ridiculous to a fighting force commander, threw the Hucks off-balance, kept them off-balance, a scrupulous minimum of damage to them, and thereby kept out of every trap the Huck set for them. In the end the cops supervised and assisted at the embittered, rebellious emigration of a race. The Hucks took off for the far side of the galaxy. They'd neither been conquered nor exterminated. But Sergeant Madden thought of the decisive fracas as a riot rather than a battle. "'Yeah,' he repeated. They acted a lot like d Patrolman Willis spoke with some heed about d who were the bane of all police forces everywhere. They practice adolescent behavior even after they grow up, but they never grow up. It is D-Links who put stink bombs in public places, and write threatening letters, and give warnings of bombs about to go off, and sometimes set them and stuff dirt into cold rocket nozzles, and sometimes kill people and go incontinently hysterical because they didn't mean to. D-Links do most of the damaging things that have no sense to them. There is no cop who has not wanted to kill some grinning, half-scared, half-defiant D-Link, who hasn't yet realized that he's destroyed half a million credits' worth of property, or crippled somebody for life for no reason at all." Sergeant Madden listened to the denunciation of all the Delink tribe. Then he yawned again. "'I know,' he said, "'I don't like them either. But we got him. We always will have him, like old age.' Then he made computations with a stubby pencil and asked reflectively, "'When are you coming out of overdrive?' Patrolman Willis told him. Sergeant Madden nodded. I'll take another nap, he observed. We'll be there a good twenty-two hours before the Aldeb. The little squad ship went on at an improbable multiple of the speed of light. After all, this was a perfectly normal performance, just an ordinary bit of business for the cops. Sergeant Madden belched when the squad ship came out of overdrive. He watched with seeming indifference, while patrolman Willis took a spectro on the star ahead and to the left, and painstakingly compared the reading with the ancient survey data on the Procyron system. It had to match, of course, unless there'd been extraordinarily bad astrogation. Willis put the spectroscope away, estimated for himself, and then checked with the dial that indicated the brightness of the still point-sized star. He said... Four light weeks, I make it. Sergeant Madden nodded. A superior officer should never do anything useful so long as a subordinate isn't making a serious mistake. That is the way subordinates are trained to become superiors in time. Patrolman Willis set a time switch and pushed the overdrive button. The squad ship hopped, and abruptly the local sun had a perceptible disk. Willis made the usual tests for direction of rotation to get the elliptic plane. He began to search for planets. As he found them he checked with the reference data. All this was tedious. Sergeant Madden grunted. "Uh, That'll be it, he said, and pointed. Water world, it's the color of ocean. Try it. Patrolman Willis threw on the telescope screen. The image of the distant planet leaped into view. It was Procyron three. The spiral-cloud arms of a considerable storm showed in the southern hemisphere, but in the north there was a group of specks which would be the planet's only solid ground, the archipelago reported by the century-old survey. The Cerberus should have been the first ship to land there in a hundred years, and the squad-ship should be the second. Patrolman Willis got the squad ship competently over to the planet, a diameter out. He juggled to position over the archipelago. Sergeant Madden turned on the space phone. Nothing. He frowned. A grounded ship awaiting help should transmit a beam signal to guide its rescuer, but nothing came up from the ground. Patrolman Willis looked at him uncertainly. Sergeant Madden rumbled and swung the telescope below. The surface of the planet appeared—deep water, practically black beneath a surface reflection of daytime sky. The image shifted—a patch of barren rocks. The sergeant glanced at the survey picture, shifted the telescope, and found the northernmost island. He swelled the picture. He could see the white monstrous surf breaking on the windward shore, waves that had gathered height going all around the planet. He traced the shoreline. And there was a bay up at the top. He centered the shoreline of the bay and put on maximum magnification. Then he pointed a stubby forefinger. A singular, perfectly straight streak of black appeared, beginning a little distance inland from the bay, and running up into what appeared to be higher ground. The streak ended not far from a serpentine arm of the sea, which almost cut the island in half. "'That'll be it,' said Sergeant Madden, rumbling. The Cerebrus had to land on her rockets. She had some ground speed. She burned a ten-mile streak on the ground, coming down. He growled. Commercial skippers. Should a match velocity aloft. Take her down. End of part one.